Welcome to the Far Aim Podcast. I'm Lee, doing a solo episode, and today I wanted to cover a couple IFR-specific regulations. Uh, 91169, 91.175, 91.169, which is just covering uh, IFR flight plan required. Mostly the same information uh, you're doing under VFR. And the VFR guys can get something hopefully out of this episode as well, some things they can maybe apply in their decision-making process, their pre-flight planning, and you know maybe have them a little bit more prepared for an instrument rating uh, in the future. 91175 is going to be um, takeoff and landing under IFR, so we'll get into that a little bit later, try and weave them together as best I can. 91169, what I wanted to zero in on here is the 123 rule if you're an instrument pilot that you know you that's common to you you know what that means and we'll go into a little bit more in depth on some things too and hopefully shed some light or cover things as a refresher for you what i want to draw attention to is the default is we need an alternate unless there the airport your destination is served by an instrument approach procedure under part 97 which of course is much more common now than it was even a decade ago, probably. You know, with WAS and RNAV, you don't have any ground-based facilities. So it's low or no cost, really, to the airport um, directly to have these instrument approach procedures. And with WAS, you know, you're getting almost a precision approach out of it. You know, you're getting glide slope information down to 250 feet above the ground level where the traditional ILS, Cat 1 ILS, is 200 feet. So you have no infrastructure requirements to maintain or to break or any of that type of stuff, and you're getting almost a precision approach out of it. So, you know, there's a lot there. But So we've heard of the, by default, you need an alternate unless you have an instrument approach procedure published for the airport. So let's say you do have the instrument approach procedure published. That gets us to the one two three rule. And what that simply means is from a one hour before your estimated time of arrival to one hour after, you need at least a 2,000 foot ceiling and three miles visibility to get away from needing to file an alternate. So it needs to be both of those, at least 2,000 feet above the ground, that's your ceiling, three mi- at least three miles of visibility. So if either one of those is lower, that kicks you into needing an alternate. I file an alternate every single time um, we'll talk about alternates maybe a little bit more as far as picking one um, and and things like that. What kind of my decision making process is when it's in and practically speaking, what maybe most people should be thinking about, or just just give you a little food for thought on some aspects of that. But let's say the weather. So we are below within one hour before to one hour after our pre-flight planning shows the weather will be less than, than that criteria, at least 2,000 feet. So let's say let's say it's 1,900-foot ceiling. So it's broken or overcast, right? Those are two types of cloud layers that make a ceiling. So it's, you know, 1,900 overcast. So that's an, that's an above-ground level value, right? Ceilings are in terms of above-ground level. So 1,900 overcast, but the visibility is four miles. Well, we've kind of encroached on the threshold of one of the two, the two limiting factors, the ceiling of visibility. So that's going to force us into into needing it. And the the converse is true. If you have a 2,100 foot ceiling, which sounds good, but you only have a two mile visibility, that is still going to throw you into needing an alternate. So it's it's an and. It's not or. So you need both of them to be satisfied in order to get out of needing an alternate. Like I said, I always file an alternate. Uh, it's partly habit, but it's also 
in terms of pre-flight planning, it's better to be checking the NOTAMs at an, at an alternate. You never know what's going to happen. There's other things other than the weather that could that could make you need an alternate. So we'll we'll talk about that. But I want to cover here just the regulation here under 91.169. So we've decided that we will need an alternate. So it's inside the threshold of the one two three rule. One hour before to one hour after two thousand at least two thousand foot ceiling and at least three miles of visibility. We're inside that, so we know we need an alternate. Now it goes on to what does our alternate airport need to have? So under 91169 Part C, IFR alternate airport weather minimums, I'm just going to read it here, and then I'll kind of sum it up here. Unless otherwise authorized by the administrator, no person may include an alternate airport in an IFR flight plan unless appropriate weather reports or forecasts or a combination of them indicate that at the estimated time of arrival at the alternate airport, the ceiling and visibility at that airport will be at or above the following weather minima. So again, it's at or above, and it's and it's not or so you need to satisfy both of the ceiling and the visibility requirements you know if you're a hardcore you know a commercial operator uh or you know a professional pilot you recognize that that most of the time we look at the visibility as the controlling factor not so much ceiling but here under part 91 they're saying if at least for from an alternate needing an alternate and alternate uh, minimums that it's an and so you need both of these set to be satisfied so we look at now at picking our alternate and so uh, I guess there's one more snippet I can read here if an instrument approach procedure has been published in part 97 so that's kind of the the preface that we said before or a special instrument approach procedure has been issued by the administrator to the operator for that airport the following minima so now, what I was about to say, for the aircraft other than helicopters, and that's typically where we stay here is just, you know, airplanes, because that's, that's what the cert certificates we have. The alternate airport minima specified in the procedure, or if none are specified, the following standard approach minima. So you need to have what the airport says it needs. But in, in lieu of that, we have our standard alternate minimums, which are for a precision approach, 600 foot ceiling and two miles of visibility so for a vfr pilot you know just just starting to get into this or you know maybe they're going to work on their instrument you know next year or in a couple of years or just going through their private with you know hopes of doing their instrument 600 foot ceiling seems low and it is but you know the standard ils gets you down to 200 foot above the ground 200 feet above the ground so you know you have some margin there but that's our standard for precision and really the ils is for the most part the only precision that that we normally encounter like i've said before the was with a glide slope gets you close but i believe that's still considered a precision like approach even though we're talking about things in terms of a decision altitude where you're descending straight down it's a constant angle descent down to a decision altitude when you reach that altitude no runway in sight no lights in sight you're going to execute the missed approach that's how a decision altitude used to be called decision height when they're talking in, uh, in terms of a height above terrain and now we talk in terms of a barometric altitude read right off the altimeter so that's kind of a leftover from from yesteryear i guess but now we turn we talk about everything in terms of barometric altitude that can be read right off the altimeter um, so that's a decision altitude that so a 602 for a precision approach then for a non-precision approach that's pretty much everything else that's your vors your vor alphas gps ndb rnav um even an lnav vnav 
type of RNAV approach, those minimums are still described in a minimum descent altitude, um, just like a VOR or a typical, you know, an old dive and drive GPS or RNAV approach, just an LNAV approach, uh, NDB, all those are, you know, dive and drives. Those are all giving you minimums in terms of a minimum descent altitude. So that's kind of the, one of the things that I use to delineate uh, the two between a precision and non-precision. Generally speaking, if you have a glide slope, your vertical guidance, you're going to look at that as pretty much treat it like a precision approach. But final letter of the law, you're really looking only at ILSs as a precision approach. And another thing is those are typically monitored. So that's and that's that's a criteria for for an alternate as well. But um, sorry for another day, I suppose I might might be able to weave it in a little bit later. But with the precision, we had a 600 foot ceiling and a two miles of visibility. Now with the non-precision, so MDA uh, types of minimums, uh, 802, 800 foot ceiling and two miles of visibility. So those are two criteria we need to meet. But we need to think about it. You know, if we start thinking about and chair flying the airports we want to use as an alternate, pretty important part of our pre-flight planning. Uh, I think so. I hope you do too. But what, what you want to think about is all the reasons you might be needing to use it. And that can, you know, answer a lot of the questions. We, you know, like at the airlines, you know, dispatch would, would give you, if the weather, you know, the one, two, three rule still applied, um, they'd give you an alternate. And yeah, it made sense for the most part, but, you know, sometimes we would, uh, and I don't remember them ever pushing back on this, but we'd ask for an alternate that was further away. You know, the pilot and the type A personality in you kind of wants you to be as close to your destination as possible. And, you know, you don't want to disrupt your your objective as little as possible when you're diverting to your alternate. So it seems counterintuitive if they had a close, sensical alternate and the weather looked good like it made sense for that to be your alternate the weather was much better at the alternate they gave you versus your destination airport so it would work for all intents and purposes it would have worked it would have checked every single box there's no reason not to use it but sometimes we would when i was i i never i never asked for it. I, I witnessed it done i just never encountered it being a factor when I was <laughs> captain um so i never asked i mean i would put on more fuel which is what i'm driving at but I would never really change the alternate. I would just go tell the fueler, hey, add another 1,000 pounds or something like that. And then I would just tell dispatch. I would just text them, hey, this is our fuel on board right now. Don't give them any reason. Short and sweet, to the point, And then they'd send you new numbers. <laughs> so it, um, that's the way I worked it. But I had seen other guys maybe try to bury it under the rug just a little bit or make something make a little bit more sense to justify the extra fuel. And so they'd say they wanted an alternate that was a little further away, knowing that they weren't going to need it. But what it did is it gave the dispatcher, it changed the legality of how much fuel you needed. So if you wanted to, you know, the regulations kind of show you need to be able to fly to your first, your destination, then to your alternate, and then 45 minutes at normal cruise speed. So basically normal cruise fuel consumption is what they really care about, not the speed. They don't care about that at all. They just care about how much, how long can you stay in the air, and you need to be able to stay in the air for 45 minutes. So that's the legality on that. And so if you took and you added, like let's say they gave you an alternate that was workable, like I said, but was close, 
you could easily take and pick an alternate that was make a case for it. You'd have to make a case for it, but pick an alternate that was twice as far away, meaning you had to take more fuel to get to that alternate and then 45 minutes. So it's just things we would do that, you know, I've seen other guys do to change the legality of how much fuel they were giving you. Cause every, every pound you take, you know, it takes fuel or it burns fuel to take fuel. So you have to be cognizant of those sorts of things. In a light GA airplane, you're pretty much always fuel limited for the most part. And that's a consideration. So you're topping off a lot anyways. But when you're flying a bigger airplane with a lot of fuel capacity and a lot of range, it's a totally different set of set of circumstances. And you want to keep, I don't want to say the bare minimum, but you want to keep your, your legal reserves and then maybe plus a little extra fuel, which the airlines do add extra fuel like we had minimum extra fuel numbers that we always had or were always planned to land with and that actually rolls right into the uh, point i wanted to make was these numbers that we're talking about the one two three rule the 602 802 these are all planning numbers you know so when you're doing your pre-flight planning these need to be valid numbers but when as soon as the wheels leave the ground and pre-flight planning stage is over, you're flying, all this goes out the window. And you, you know, to be legal, it all needs, it, the weather needs to show that it will be good when you get to your destination, basically, one hour before to one hour after. And, and you, reasonably so, you want it to be good enough to get in. You know, they just have to put a threshold on to kind of give you some margin of error to force into having that exit strategy. You, you might not be filing an alternate or thinking that way. So they're, they're trying to give you kind of um, a backstop to keep you kind of conservative by regulation. So um, those are planning numbers. And, and having some minimum extra fuel, having a little bit more of a conservative amount of fuel you want to have in the tank when you land always a good idea but these are planning numbers it's if you think about it it's fuel to be used once you're in the air it's not fuel to land with because as we all know there are how, how good a planning can you do everything we deal with is a forecast forecast headwind forecast tailwind forecast you know in route weather um forecast weather at the destination and the alternate so everything's a forecast and a guess so take that with a grain of salt um, you can pad the numbers all you want, but at the end of the day, that's fuel to be used in flight. Land, land with, you know, something in the tank, of course, but we all know there's plenty of variables that, that pop up. ATC delays is another one I didn't add. And uh, that can whittle away at your what would have been your reserve fuel supply that you should be landing with. Once the wheels leave the ground, it's fuel to be burned. Um, I don't mean to say that in a cavalier sense, um, but it's there for a reason. But, you know, be conservative. And th this regulation here is one way to help you do that. Um, then I guess finally, under, to wrap up 91-169, I'm sure I omitted something, mixed something up, I, and I apologize. Send me some hate mail. Please, I appreciate the constructive criticism for sure. If there is no instrument approach procedure like we kind of alluded to at the beginning if there is no instrument approach procedure so that was kind of what we talked about at the beginning when you need an alternate if there isn't an instrument approach procedure you need an alternate anyways but if there is no instrument approach procedure you also need to be able to descend from the mea the minimum and root altitude 
which is an altitude that gives you, you know, obstacle clearance and reception of nav aids. That's one way to think about MEA. That's why, you know, there's minimum obstruction clearance altitude. There's, you know, off-route obstruction clearance altitudes. There's M, uh, what is it, MCA, minimum crossing altitude, MRA, minimum reception altitude. There's a bunch of them, and I'm sure there's other ones that I've forgotten. If you're always dealing with MEA, and of course you have to have an airplane that's capable of doing it, so that's that's a caveat, I suppose which I mostly am, so that's why you kind of push most of the other stuff out of your memory. But if you deal with MEA when you can, you're able to, you know, receive nav aids that make up that route. And if, you know, if you're doing, uh, green, not green needles, but um, VOR or short-range navigation like a VOR, making up a Victor airway or a, or a jet route of some sort, if you're, you know, in like a King Air or something like that, or, you know, maybe like a Malibu, Pilatus, um, Caravan, those sorts of things, kind of middle altitude type type numbers that are still still up in the jet route, still above flight level 180, 18,000 feet, but you're still kind of low, you know, by my, I mean, it's a relative term. If, if you're doing that, if you're at the MEA, that's going to give you reception of the nav aids that make up the route, and it's going to give you obstruction clearance altitude or, obstru- or uh, obstacle clearance as well. So that's a good solid one to shoot for. If you're planning over a route that's giving you jet routes and Victor Airways, and you're in an airplane that doesn't allow you to meet the MEA, and, and then you see, you know, alongside the MEA uh, altitude value, and you see, you know, other MRA, things like that. Look at that. Look up the legality and what that guarantees you. Do a little homework when you're pre-flight planning, for sure. So it goes without saying, if you don't have an instrument approach procedure, you need to be able to descend from your MEA. So you're in route. You're in route environment. You need to be able to send all the way down to land under VFR if you don't have an instrument approach procedure. Kind of goes without saying. Um, 91-175 moving over now. Takeoff and landing under IFR. They talk about a lot of stuff, and I don't want to go too into it. What I really want to, and this is an email I've, I'd gotten. I apologize for the delay on, on covering it, uh, but this is a perfect time. I want to cover operations below decision altitude, or like I said before, it used to be called decision height, and they've still left that in here because some airplanes out there are still operating under decision height. You can't, even if you have like a uh, more advanced autopilot or EFIS, you're still some kind of, you know, like a very primitive glass cockpit. They're still referencing everything in terms of a height above terrain or a decision height, not a barometric altitude. So it's very difficult to work with that, but some are still out there. So I guess the FAA is still keeping it in here to keep it kind of pertinent and a coverall for what may be out there flying. So part C under 91.175 is operation below DA slash DH or MDA. I'm going to omit the DH. Um, you know what I mean? I've, I've kind of given you a disclaimer. I'm going to go DA and MDA now because I, I don't want to keep saying that every time. It says except as provided under 91.176, which is another regulation just talking about using um, like enhanced division system for you know, flying and reduced visibility. So I'm just going to gloss over that. So except as provided 91-176 of this chapter where a DA or MDA is applicable, no pilot may operate an aircraft except a military aircraft of the United States below the authorized MDA or continue an approach below the authorized DA unless. And so now this is the meat of everything we're talking about. 
number one here. The aircraft is continually in a position from which a descent to a landing on the intended runway can be made at a normal rate of descent using normal maneuvers and for operations conducted under Part 121 or Part 135 unless that descent rate will allow touchdown to occur within the touchdown zone of the runway of intended landing. So they want you to be able to shoot this approach, but don't descend below MDA unless you're continuously in a position to land the aircraft safely is the bottom line. Watering that way down. For part what they mentioned for part 121, which is scheduled air carriers, that's you know the airlines, and part 135, which is another form of commercial operator, that's charter or air taxi. Is it well air taxis the regulation, what the regulations call it, charter operators, you know, FlexJet, ExoJet, a lot of part 135. There's more part 135 operators out there than anything. So um, all those guys, anybody who's kind of got the understood responsibility to the general public is who's going to have to uh, operate, you know, in, in this context, we have to, not only do we need to be able to use normal maneuvers and a normal descent rate, we need to be able to descend or land in the touchdown zone of the uh, runway, which is, you know, generally regarded as like the first 3000 feet or so. And, you know, we, we typically do better than that uh, too. We're pretty much right, you know, right at the fixed distance markers or the thousand footers or the aiming point markers, whatever you want to call them, the big white squares that are on either side of the center line, about a thousand feet from the threshold of the runway. So we try to aim for that, or we do aim for that. We try to touch down on or very close to those. So the 3000 foot, you know, area that they give us is pretty generous all things considered everybody has a bad day though you know i know that so continuously a point to land using normal maneuvers normal descent rate and touchdown within the first third three three thousand feet of the runway uh right around the thousand footers uh if you really want to be picky and you know there, there's something that comes up when you start talking about an mda a minimum descent altitude, those can be tricky when you start MDA or typically on a non-precision approach, like I said before. And they'll oftentimes have on there what's called a VDP, a visual descent point. And that the, the issue with that is that kind of gives you the understanding that you're going to be at the published minimum descent altitude. So let's say that that's 1150, 1,150 feet. That may have been a bad example, but I'm going to try and do this as best I can on the fly. 1,150 feet. Well, your altitude pre-select that works with your flight director. Now, if you're hand flying in a smaller airplane, 1150, you know, whatever, you're probably going to give that some margin above that anyway. So that's going to kind of parallel you with my point. In an aircraft that is equipped with a flight director and autopilot and altitude pre-select window that's going to have the your guidance constantly trying to get you to an altitude is what i'm trying to talk about We're, we can't set 1150 feet we can set 1100 or we can set 1200 well 1100 1100 feet is below the 1150 feet that that they that they publish so that would kind of reduce your margin for obstruction clearance, things like that. So you're not going to do that. The the kind of the best practice is to set the next higher whole value number, so 1,200. 
Well, that's 50 feet higher though. So what are you going to do? Because on an MDA, minimum descent altitude, it can be, you know, you can talk about your um, missed approach point in terms of distance or time. So what we, which if you're not at the altitude they specify, how are we, how do we know that we will be able to commence the um, leaving our MDA, our minimum descent altitude on time to do, you know, what they're basically defining for the most part, the, the outcome, the objective of a stabilized approach. So how do we know if we're not at the altitude that's published on the chart, we can't use the VDP that they're listing if they list one. We're higher than that. So our VDP is actually further away from the runway. Our visual descent point is further from the runway because we're higher. Does that make sense? Because we want to be able to leave our minimum descent altitude and do a stabilized approach there all the rest of the way in. So there's, again, on an MDA or a non-precision approach, you have timed or you have uh, a distance, which is what tells you your, your uh, missed approach point. So there's two ways of doing it, and I'm going to try and make it as simple as I can. It may not come through. It's kind of hard to describe, and I guess I'm not very good at it anyways. If it's distance, that one's a little easier. Take your um, altitude, altitude to lose, so your height above terrain number um, that, you, that, you, that you're adjusted. Remember, you're, you're higher. So you're going to have to, you know, if 1,150 feet, you're going to have to add 50 feet to it. Okay, so like, let's say, let's say, again, I want a round number for simplicity's sake. Let's say that 1,150 feet is uh, 550 feet above ground level. Your height above terrain is 550 feet. We're, we can't level off at 1150. We can only level off at 1200, which is, uh, let's call it 600 feet above the touchdown zone, a height above terrain. Uh, AGL, right? So 600. So when you start talking about altitude and distance, if that if distance is how the missed approach is defined, we can um, determine that from 1,200 feet, which is 600 AGL in our example, we can divide that by 300. Take your altitude to lose, divide by 300, and that will give you, that will yield you a distance so in this case, it's easy math. I did this way on purpose. That's two miles out. So when you are shooting this approach, you've leveled off at MDA. You got decent visibility. You got some ground contact, and you're just kind of trucking along towards the uh, the runway, configured to land, of course. Um, you're just trucking along at MDA, and you wait for that timer to Set, or not time, sorry, uh, your, your DME or your RNAV equipment to tell you you're two miles from the, you know, the runway, whatever, two, three, uh, Mr. Approach waypoint, uh, or, you know, to the runway along track distance, um, which whatever kind of information you're using, when it's showing you two miles away, runways in sight, leaving MDA, set my Mr. Approach altitude is kind of how the, how the call should somewhat be. So you're going along your MDA, You've calculated two miles from is when you need to start down in order to do a stabilized approach. So you want to see that runway, and ho hopefully you do. You know, hopefully you have ground contact. You're just waiting to get a little bit closer. You have it in sight. You wait for your 
you're two miles out and you know you can start a little bit early you know it, because it's not the airplane doesn't start down instantaneously if you're uh commanding this using the autopilot if you're hand flying yeah you can nose it right over so you want to be a little bit closer right on your two miles out from the uh, runway when you nose it over manually using the yoke but if you're using the autopilot you know you can start down 0.2 prior uh, I know the FAA is okay with that. So obviously, if you're a commercial operator or you know whatever, talk to you know your check airman or chief pilot or whatever the case may be, and get kind of the and obviously do the SOPs of you know of your company. I'm sure nobody you know is gonna. They probably have a better idea what their company SOPs or how they do it, anyways. But this is gener- generally for more pilots learning to fly or working through their ratings anyways but these are just uh, you know food for thought on on these procedures so that's distance i hope i kind of summed that up at the end there good enough then when you're talking about a timed approach you're going to take your height above terrain so again change your ch- change your number accordingly because if you're not going to level off at the exact altitude that is specified on the chart then you're going to have to do some some addition and and with the time with the timed approach you're going to look at your height your your uh, adjusted height above terrain so i'm going to go back to the same same number um, we're going to be 600 feet above the ground we're going to divide that by 10 so our adjusted height above terrain that we're going to level off at as our mda is 600 we're going to divide that number by 10 that gives us 60 of course when that's seconds that turns into seconds what we want to do is we're deducting a value from our timed missed approach point if that makes any sense so you can again of course you know turn it into distance if you want but what we're driving at is trying to figure out where we need to be because we can't use the missed approach point that is that is published we can't use the VDP that is published because we're not at that altitude. So these these we're trying to simulate a kind of operate like a DA. When you get to a point, airport's not in sight, we're going around. And what we're doing is is for part 121, part 135, we want to make sure that we can be a stabilized, we can do a stabilized, commence a stabilized approach. If we can't, there's no reason to continue. There's no reason to continue all the way to our missed approach point because if we get there and it's saying um, a minute 20, but we need 1,200 feet, you know, we, we set our timer and wait for it to say 120 if that's what's on the plate. Well, if we get there and it was it's going to take us 1,500 feet a minute to get to the runway, well, that's not stabilized. So we don't want to let it get that far. We want to, you know, have a game plan in mind that allows us, that, that kind of deducts time off our missed approach point so that we're the time expires further out that we need to have that runway in sight because that's the point from which we, that's our like our decision time, basically. You're going to roll your MDA until that time runs out. And if there's no runway in sight, there's no reason to continue. So you'll just execute a miss then. Don't waste another 60 seconds, which would have, what that's what the math would have shown on this example we did. 600 feet, that's your adjusted height above terrain, divided by 10, that's 60, so 60 seconds. So whatever is published on the plate, whatever is published on the plate as your missed approach time, you're going to deduct 60 seconds from that. So, you know, like, let's say, you know, it's, it's uh, a minute 20 
that's your missed approach point from from the final approach to the missed approach point is a minute 20. Well, now you're down to just 60. So when that clock strikes a minute, you you might as well go missed because you're no longer going to be able to do a stabilized approach to the runway after that one minute runs out. So those are kind of some general rules of thumb to comply. You know, if you're trying to be uh, trying to be professional, which I encourage everybody to be, and kind of maybe you know, introduce some more advanced concepts to your flying when you're chair flying. And it kind of really gets you ahead of the airplane. I, I really think it would help get you ahead of the airplane if you're thinking kind of in these terms, thinking of mileage, altitude to lose divided by 300, or, you know, um, your height above terrain divided by 300, that would yield you a, a mileage. Just like our en route, like I just kind of slipped up and started saying, just like in route descent planning, Altitude to lose times three gives you a mileage value, how far away from the airport or from that waypoint. You know, if ATC gives you a crossing restriction, how far away from that waypoint you need to start descending. So that you've answered that question. Okay, so I need to lose 3,000 feet. You know, when when do I start my descent? So, well, so you're at 3,000 feet. You need to lose 3,000 feet. Like, let's say you're going to a, you know, an untowered airport out, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. You're at 3,000 feet. You want to stay as high as long as, as long as you can. Because you got a nice tailwind. Fuel burns low. It's nice and smooth, nice and cool. If it's a hot summer or something like that, you want to, there, you have every reason in the world to stay high as long as you can. Maybe 3,000 isn't a very good example because that's not very high, but just for simple, it's just the first number that came up. 3,000 feet. That's your altitude to lose. That will give you a nice consistent angle right to the runway, let's say. Um, 3,000 3, times 3 is 9. So 3 times 3 is 9. So 9 miles away is when you want to start your descent. And so what vertical speed do you want to use? The general rule of thumb for that is your ground speed divided by 2 and then add a 0. So let's say you're... You know, for 3,000 feet, you know, let's say you're in a kind of like a light trainer, a 172, an archer, um, a 152, what have you. Um, let's say your ground speed, and this is what we're working on is ground speed. Let's say your ground speed is 120 knots. That's pretty realistic. You take your ground speed, divide it by two, and then add a zero. So ground speed of 120 divided by two is 60, add a zero, 600 feet per minute if that makes any sense to everybody. So yeah, you've decided you're 3,000 feet to lose, so three times three is nine miles out is when you start your descent, but at what rate to make this all work out? 600 feet per minute. Now, because that's your ground speed divided by two, and then add a zero at the end. 120 divided by two is 60, 60 add a zero, 600, 600 feet per minute on your vertical speed indicator. Now, keep in mind that 600 feet per minute, of course, is going to plant you into the ground well before the um, runway. If you just you know close your eyes and set that all up in the autopilot and let her go, because your true airspeed is going to go down as you descend. Um, you will need a little bit of time to slow down, get flaps and gear down, all the various things we do. If you're in something faster, plan for it. You're going to have a level off period once you go below 10,000 feet. Um, you have to slow from whatever your in route airspeed is or cruise speed and down to 250 knots indicated airspeed. So that can always mess with you a little bit. But typically, a lot of that's canceled out by the fact that you're you're doing a higher true airspeed up at the altitude. You know, at least in the jets, high performance stuff, you know, you're doing quite a bit faster. You know, you're doing 480 knots. And then by the time you're getting down towards, you know, 
12, 13,000 feet, you're down in the 340s, 350s, and you know, bleeding. So you you you'll watch if you do the calculations further out and you just keep doing the mental math as you descend, you'll see that you're kind of catching up to it. So you can start with, you know, a shallower descent angle, or you can use a little bit of buffer and stay up just a little bit longer, knowing that the numbers are going to go more in your favor in terms of a later descent as you, you're, you're going to get halfway through the descent and be like, hey, I could have stayed up a little bit longer. You'll always find yourself saying that unless you unless you factor that in ahead of time and stay up too long. And then I found myself doing everything I can to to get down. And, and finally, you know, you end up asking ATC, hey, we're not going to be able to make this crossing. I've never had heard them say over the radio or and they've never said it to me. Okay, I'm going to need you to call this number. If you tell them before, you're not going to be able to make something something happen um it seems like you know you're telling them before you broke the rule so they're just they're gonna have to figure out how to help you fix it <laughs> that's up to them so uh fess up to it before you break a regulation if you are working on a crossing restriction um hopefully that sums that up so that's that's descent planning in terms of you know that's in route which we went off on a tangent on but also for the approach uh, finish that one up. The visibility is not less than visi- visibility prescribed in the standard instrument approach being used. That makes sense. Don't start an approach if you don't think uh, you can do it. If it's part 91, you can kind of do whatever you want. But they're saying don't descend below MDA unless you have the visibility for the approach. Makes sense. If you don't, you probably won't see the runway anyways, and you'll probably have already, you know, ducked under that that very low layer of clouds or that low visibility, and and really marginalized the uh, safety. I mean, you've really uh, cut down the safety margin a lot. So obviously, don't do that. Uh, it's not worth it. Never is. Um, except for category two or category three approach, where any necessary visual references. Are uh, requirements are specified by the administrator. At least one of the following visual references for the intended runway is distinctly visible and identifiable to the pilot. So now we're going to list all the things we would need to see in order to descend below MDA. So we'll talk a little bit more about some of these in detail, but uh, we're going to go on to list. The first one's a long one, and this is one that's talked about most. The approach light system. So that's one of the that's one of the first things that you would most likely see. They're super bright. There's flashing lights. There's sequen, sequenced flashing lights. Those obviously are very identifiable, especially if they have them up on full intensity. It's almost debilitating how bright some of these can be. Uh, and I've never, I mean, the approach lights are always the, the obviously the first thing you see. If you don't see those, you're not going to see the runway. That's pretty much all there is to it. So the approach lighting system, except that the pilot may not descend below 100 feet above the touchdown zone elevation, using the approach lights as a reference, unless the red terminating bars or the red side row bars are also distinctly visible and identifiable. When I was learning or doing my instrument rating, red side row bars, red terminating bars, nobody knew what those meant. When I, when I went on to become a CFI, I didn't know what they meant. So I've gone on and have continued my career path here. Two airlines, multiple 135 operators, and four type ratings. I finally know what those things are. And most of you guys probably already know. But 2-1-1 in the AIM is the start of kind of your uh, runway or the lighting system, approach lighting system. The very first page is going to show you the main approach lighting systems. ALSIF 2, ALSIF 1, the MALSAR, SALSARs. 
Okay, so those are the three, which I like to brief when I brief an approach. What are we going to be looking for? Um, the Alsif 2 and Alsif 1, so those are kind of the most prominent, and those are the nicest ones with the nice sequence flashing. You'll see those super bright, really good guidance, really good reference for the, the runway environment, and kind of give you a nice warm, fuzzy feeling like, hey, we're going to be able to make this work. Those two have... Uh, the the Alsif 2s have the red side row bars, which is a bunch of rows of red lights on either side of the center line of the approach light footprint. So you need to have those in sight. And then if it's an Alsif 1, so you just if you just look at kind of the footprint of the uh, approach lighting system, you have all your lights, all your sequence flashing lights, all, all the white lights. And then on the Alsif 2, you'll have the red side row bars. And then on an Alsif 1, you won't have the side row bars. All you will have is a, a small like a row of red terminating bars, which is right before the threshold lights for the runway. And they're called the terminating bars because that's where the approach lighting system terminates. Does that make sense? There's no other red lights. They're just at the end of all these sequence flashing lights. You'll just have two little groups either side of the center line of the approach lighting system, they're just red terminating bars, red terminating lights called red terminating bars. And those just delineate the end of the approach lighting system and basically the beginning of the runway. So you have the red terminating bars very close to the thr runway threshold lights. And after that, of course, is the runway. So in order to descend below 100 feet above the ground. So like, let's say you're coming in on an MDA type approach. You're up at 500 feet above ground, AGL. You get the you get the approach lights in sight. Okay, you're gonna duck down. You can duck down to a hundred feet, but you can't be go below that unless you have the red side row bars or the red um, terminating bars. And then if you don't have those, if like let's say you're using a Malzar, which is an, probably the next most common approach lighting system, Malzars then you're going to default kind of to the um, the threshold markings or the other markings that we're about to go list. So, because those don't have the red side row bars, the red terminating bars. So keep that in mind. So you can descend down to 100 feet above the ground level, but you can't go any lower than that until you have the red uh, side row bars or red terminating bars in sight on the ALSIF 2 and ALSIF 1 uh, approach lighting system. Malzars, Salzars, those aren't going to give you the red side row bars. So the, you're going to kind of go to one of the next items, one of the next reference, um, visual references um, that's listed here. So the next one is the threshold. Makes sense. That's the runway. The threshold markings, the threshold lights, like I said a minute ago, the runway and identifier lights. So those are commonly called real lights, R-E-I-L. And those are just two, um, they're, they're, they're on either side of the runway, in the runway threshold. They're very bright strobes. Um, just strobe lights, and it's very. They really help identify your landing runway. Um, they're they're great. Uh, you know, you're unfamiliar. Uh, I imagine they're cheap to operate too, so um, it's a win for everybody. But yeah, if those are in sight, that's considered you know good enough to you know continue to descent to land. Uh, visual visual glide slope indicator. Um, so that's going to be one of two. The VASI lights visual approach slope indicator lights or papi lights precision approach path indicator lights those are kind of your red and whites you know kind of giving you roughly a three degree glide path to the touchdown zone so all the everything we talked about descent planning a little bit ago that's all based on a three degree glide path so in route 
on an approach, whatever, three degrees, keep it nice and stabilized. All those notes, that will work out for everything we talked about on the timed approach when you're calculating a planned descent point versus a visual descent point. The, that, that's all you want it all to be derived or, or kind of predicated on a three-degree glide path. Nice and, and stable, and it's good rules of thumb to shoot for to keep it comfortable for, for you. It's easy for you to plan. It's comfortable for your passengers. Everybody's on the same page. It just works out really, really well and just kind of gives you simple you know, rules of thumb and guidelines to how to conduct these approaches. And it's just second nature over time. So that's all based on a three degree, which is coincidentally what a um, what the Pappies and the Vazzy lights will give you as well. You know, it can be, you know, half a degree above, half a degree below, whatever it needs to be to make the obstacle clearance requirements work out for the touchdown point. So that that's what it's predicated on. The glide slope would do the same thing. Threshold crossing height would all be the same. It's all driving it, getting you above all the obstacles and landing on the um, fixed distance markers or the aiming point markers, thousand footers, whatever you want to call them. The big white blocks on either side of the center line of an instrument runway. That's that's what they're there for. So if you have those in sight, those are pretty much a beam that fixed this the thousand footers, fixed distance markers. And so if they're a thousand feet down the runway, basically. So if you have those in sight, you definitely have pavement and should have pavement in front of you in sight as well. But that's why there's other qualifying you know stuff we're going to list here now too. Um, but those are for the thousand feet down. So if you have those in sight. Chances are it's not going to be an issue. Um, the touchdown zone are touchdown zone markings, the touchdown zone lights, the runway or runway markings, the runway lights. So if you can see this has two, three left on the pavement, I would say that's pretty good indicator that, you know, you have adequate visual reference. Uh, the runway lights, of course, there's one on either side of the runway. So if you just land in between those two, equidistant between those two, you're going to be landing on pavement. Um, touchdown zone or touchdown zone markings, um, those again, you know, are all those, you know, white lines across the, the the pavement. If you see something that is written with paint on the pavement, suffice it to say that's going to be sufficient. Moving on to landing, uh, no pilot operating aircraft except military aircraft of the United States may land that aircraft when for operations conducted under 91176, which is the enhanced uh, vision system like we talked about before. Uh, so we'll gloss right over that. Uh, number two here, for all other operations under this part and operations part 121, 125, 129, 135, the flight visibility is less than the visibility prescribed in the standard instrument approach procedure being used. So what that means is we've talked about, we've built a scenario before we're shooting this approach and outside of the final approach fix, we have whether to do the approach. We're legal to start the approach. Once we're inside the final approach fix, the weather can drop below that, can be reported as less than required for the instrument approach procedure, but we're still legal to do it as long as we say we have the flight visibility to do it. So it's kind of an out. The FAA has given us an out. And chances are, if you have, if you've, we've as we've painted the scenario driving through this instrument approach procedure, we got cleared for it, we started it, we got down to minimums, we uh, saw some of the runway environment, all the different, uh, the, the markings and the lights and the approach light system, all those different things. If we see those, chances are we do have the flight visibility. Uh, we do have the visibility to shoot and land successfully. 
I don't know. Almost, it almost doesn't even make sense why they even delineate it like that. Like from descent below MDA and landing, it kind of seems redundant to me because you've left the MDA already and you, you've said you have some of these visual references in sight. Well, of course, why can't I land? So it seems redundant to me. It's in here. I uh, just want to cover it. Missed approach procedure. You need to have um, those items in sight that we kind of listed before. If, if you lose sight of it, if you lose sight basically of your landing area, your landing uh, zone, or any of those reference, whatever reference point you were using to determine that your your landing zone, then you need to execute a missed approach. Um, the only time you know you can really it's buried in here. You've probably heard it. You know, like let's say on a circling approach, you and you dip the wing to make this turn, and you want to keep your bank angle twenty five to thirty degrees. I think like all the circling criteria is all based on a twenty five degree bank. I'm not sure. I can't quite remember, but it's something like that. Keep it, which we're all pretty good about doing, anyways. You know, you don't want to. I try to always teach students. Uh, do you know do a standard rate turn when you can which is 25 to 30 degrees of bank and one that gets them looking at the instrument a little bit another time to look at the turn coordinator keep that ball in the center the inclinometer if you will keep that in the center and keep an eye on it and over time they eventually get a good feel for what that bank angle looks like plus or minus five degree i mean what, what do i care you know when you're out there vfr flying or but on a check ride you know it's i think it's plus or minus five degrees but you want to do 25 to 30 degrees of bank. But when you do that, of course, you're maneuvering the airplane. So you could be dropping a wing that, or, or, or whatever, turning the airplane, where that may inhibit your ability to see your landing runway. So if it's a meteorological you know, type of phenomenon that is, obscures your vision to see your landing runway, that's a problem. Execute a mist. But the only time that it's pretty much okay to lose sight of the runway is if it's part of the airplane that is blocking your view, which is common sense, and you've probably heard it, but this is this is where it's buried at. It's 91-175 under the mist approach. So keep that in mind. Um, Civil airport takeoff minimums, part 91 is 00. zero. Do I recommend it? No. You know, if you're in a King Air or, you know, a Twin Otter or something like that that's got some climb capability, uh, if you lose one, that's one thing. And even then, you know, you need to have a plan, especially, well, especially if you lose one, even transport category, you have to have a plan if you lose an engine. But under Part 91, it's not required. It's not required to, to is it prudent? Yeah, it's definitely prudent to have a plan. Um, and it's prudent to probably let there be a little bit better visibility. That that's up to you, ceiling of visibility. But that that's that's up to you. Part ninety one, there's no regulation though. But one twenty one, one thirty five, the default minimum is a mile. Now the FAA can ad administer or give you what's what are called operation specifications that reduce that visibility. Like so, like all the operators I've flown for, you know, IFR operators, we have five hundred RVR minimums, which is five hundred feet of what's called runway visual range. So, you know, like for example, uh, a quarter mile visibility, you know, most GA and part 91 VFR guys are used to thinking in terms of miles and you see, you see quarter mile visibility that's low. Well, that's 1600 RVR, you know, that's three times, <laughs> that's three times more. We're, we're legal to take off in 500 RVR runway visual range. 
So it's pretty crazy, pretty low. But, you know, it's transport category. We're trained to it. That's what, you know, whenever we do our V1 cuts, which is a simulated engine failure um, at the decision speed on the runway, we do that all at 500 RVR. So all of our training is kind of predicated around our, the lowest minimums we're allowed to use, which is 500 RVR. Uh, but the default is one mile for part 121, 135 for, you know, two engine, two engine airplanes or, or less. So 91, it's legal to go zero, zero. Don't recommend it. Um, moving on down, there's that. Oh, actually here, there is a, uh, the RVR chart um, as well. So I, I referenced a little bit ago, quarter mile invisibility is 1600 feet in RVR value. So runway visual range. So um, they just have like these, what they're called transmissiometers uh, along the runway. They have uh, touchdown midpoint rollout. And then I think far end. And I don't know that there's really any great advantage of having the far end. Un it's nice that you can substitute, you know, one or the other. It gives you a substitution ability. If you have like a really long runway, which I'm sure there's some criteria when you can, when a far end is even applicable, it's like it wouldn't make much sense to have it on a 5,000 or 6,000 foot runway. Do they exist? They might. I don't know. But it's going to be a really long runway when you end up having a far end. So typically you have the three touchdown midpoint rollout. And some of those, depending on what type of weather you have or, or what's inoperable, inoperable, uh, some can be controlling and some can substitute. So if one of them's out, you can substitute one of the other readings for the other one. And then if that's the case, then it's control. There's all kinds of jargon too, and I'd have to refresh my memory anyways. But when it gets that bad that you're on that that thin racer's edge, you eventually get in the books and refresh your memory when the weather is that bad. Um, just like when you've been flying all summer and then it's time to de-ice for the first time or you think you're going to have to de-ice tomorrow morning, you get the books out and you just refresh your memory a little bit. Even at the professional level, we do all the same stuff. We forget We forget so much stuff i think that's kind of the cliff notes on all of that we've covered one two three yeah i think i think that's pretty much all i have on the uh, 91 169 which is the one two three rule we talked about uh determining an alternate i guess the only thing is just when, when you're gonna go conduct a flight to sum this all up when you're gonna go conduct a flight and you're gonna chair fly Run yourself through arriving at that alternate airport, your destination airport, your alternate airport. Because if you go look, like we talked about the, the precision approach versus non-precision approach and how those are different and what the requirements are as listing them as an alternate. Just because that airport has an alternate or has an ILS, let's say, a precision approach down to 200 feet, great, I'm happy now. I can use 602 can be my alternate minimums. Well, yeah, but what if that's the only ILS and that's to a runway that's closed to the a runway? And well, that's not so much a factor, but what if it's a runway that has not been plowed? Or what if it's a runway that the wind doesn't align with? What if you just can't use that runway? And now the next runner up is the opposite end of that same piece of pavement, which only has an LNAV approach that takes you down to 450 feet. Well, that's a much, that's a much bigger difference than, than that you might want to find out before you're checking on with tower and they clear you for the, or, you know, what type of approach do you want to, and then you, you don't realize the mistake you made until you said, oh yeah, requesting the, the RNAV two-weight approach. And you're like, oh, 
the ILS was was the one zero. Like you went through all the mental steps of arriving at the right conclusion, what runway, what approach you were going to shoot, but then you forgot everything you predicated using that as an alternate. Everything was predicated on using. You're probably going to be fine, but you predicated it on using the ILS as your minimum as a precision approach. So keep that in mind. You know, I, I do totally emphasize that you want to use a towered airport because they can give you they're like having another crew member in the airplane they can be checking they they can give you weather they can give you wind checks they can give you you know any updates on anything else anything that keeps you heads up in the game of flying the airplane and frees up your faculties to think about the matter at hand maybe you're you're picking up ice it's it's rough you're you're watching fuel all those sorts of things can wear on you and if you can get one less thing distracting you uh, i think that's a win and a towered airport is one way to do that you're going to typically have a better runway condition idea typically you're going to have better runway condition anyways it's probably grooved if it's not, you know, if it's grooved, if it's, you're worried about, if that's, if it's wet, you know, if it just was a monsoon came through or a, you know, a torrential rain is grooved. So it's basically going to effectively operate as dry, uh, which if, you know, if it's 10,000 feet or 6,000 feet and you're a 172, who cares anyways, but it can help controllability. If it is a crosswind, maybe they only have one runway. If it's a bunch of snow, you, they, you just got just rolled through uh, a little squall or, you know, a front, it's probably pl- going to be plowed sooner, probably already plowed. It's grooved, it's plowed, you get condition code um, updates, you get visibility updates, all those sorts of things. Huge amount of advantages when you're talking about a towered airport versus an untowered. I understand the, the, the type A want of having an alternate airport that is close to your destination, but if you can kind of work through that and you can pretty much be okay with maybe an hour drive to the hotel or to the business meeting or whatever, but you had no stress. It was a no-brainer. The, the, the alternate you picked, the weather was pretty good. The runways were long. You had a bunch of runways to pick from. If the worst thing you have to really worry about is interacting with air traffic control and you don't have to worry about fuel or crosswinds or minimums on the approach, any of those things got a nice fbo there's fuel there all these things there's somebody to greet you all those things can go a long way towards making that a productive if it's a business meeting all that stuff just think of of what you are giving up uh when you pick a the close airport to your to your meeting and you had no updates you you were just you were worried about you know how was the runway condition going to be was it going to be a stiff crosswind is the fuel going to be available? All those sorts of things. All those things just completely exit the equation when you pick a bigger, I don't want to say more established, you know, if it's a VFR day, and I mean, or you've been to this, obviously the small airport a bunch of times, you know the lay of the land. It's it's That's that's a totally different scenario. But if you're going somewhere new, it's, to me, it's a no-brainer to pick the big airport with a tower where you have, you know, some, they're not a crew member in the plane with you, but I would still consider crew resource management. They can definitely help you out in a multitude of ways ATC can. So that's pretty much wrapping it up there. I'm sure there's something I missed, omitted. Like I said, this is my second time recording. I had deleted the first one on accident. Uh, I'm getting emails on continuing a part three for the checkride uh, prep. 
and we haven't forgot about it. Just waiting for everybody to, get, to be able to get together to uh, finish those. We're only a f- really uh, a very small amount in, and I think there's like 72 items. So there's a long way to go towards getting all those and a lot of knowledge content and, and a lot more conversation like this, which seems to be well received. Um, this is a solo episode, my first one, you know, so it's not quite as organic as I'd like, but it's a uh, work in progress, right? Feel free to send me an email with any questions, comments, concerns. I'm sure I missed or omitted something or mixed something up, and I apologize. Did the best I could. F-A-R-A-I-M at LeeGriffing.com. We, you know, we like hearing from you guys, seeing what stage you're at, just starting your private, just starting your CFI, looking at a career change. Uh, whatever the case may be, we do enjoy interacting with you guys. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.